God wants all of his children to have the fullness of the blessing of the Holy Spirit, even now. And it is God's responsibility to fill you. You cannot fill yourself. God has shed his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is the Spirit that that fills us with divine love. You're listening to the Holy Joys Podcast, co-hosted by Jonathan Arnold and Dr. David Fry. Visit us at holyjoys.org and stay tuned for weekly discussions of theology and ministry practice, all for a holy, happy church. All right, we're back together after both having been sick. You had covid uh, and uh, I was pretty sick. I didn't get tested. I tried, but it was uh, pretty difficult in our area. Everybody was backed up like two to four days. And then by the time I could get in for a yeah, test, I was starting to feel better. So I don't know if I had COVID or not, uh, but you seem to be feeling better. Yeah, I am. Uh, same here. It was hard to get tested. We happen to have a, a uh, home test. So I took it and it was definitely positive, okay. but yeah, I had a light case, so I'm thankful for that. I did have the vaccine, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but uh, I'm glad to be feeling better. Hey, you said your mind was kind of foggy. You know, ever since I, I had COVID months ago, for, for sure, I tested positive. And uh, ever since then, I don't know, sometimes I still feel a little foggy, and I heard this talk about long COVID. So if I say anything mm-hmm. crazy today, I'll just blame it on that. Um, oh, they, the the good thing is, is neither one of us will know because we're both going to be foggy <laughs> after this COVID. So, uh. well, the last time we were together, we talked about um, holiness metaphors, and we looked at eradication. Uh, trying to remember here, uh, what else we discussed? Yeah, cleansing uh, the negative that negative metaphor, right. which is you know found in you know just about every you know, theology and Methodist history, you know, has, you know, a, a significant conversation about cleansing. That's a, that's a major theme, uh, holiness theme through, uh, through the old and new Testament. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it does tend to be uh, negative, right? It's a cleansing. It's a, a, a sense. We talked about the sense of removal. I think you gave a, a couple of different understandings there right. as well. Cleansing is, is a little bit, uh, unique, you know, removal of a root. That's definitely very right. negative removal of a bent eradication. Cleansing does have like more of positive overtones, like to make clean or pure, uh, seems like a positive thing, but obviously the process of cleansing is negative. You're removing defilement, you're taking something away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so what we wanted to do now is kind of shift gears and talk about positive holiness metaphors. Uh, I do think there's a lot of danger in, in making negative metaphors your primary uh, metaphors for dealing with holiness. I think they're, they're important. Um, but I, I, I see like, especially in Wesley, a much more emphasis on the positive metaphors for holiness, mm-hmm. uh, especially perfect sure. love or filling sure. fullness. And, um, and so I think both, both the positive and the negative metaphors kind of inform one another and, and help us to get a holistic view of what God wants to do. Obviously got us to deal with sin, but the goal of dealing with sin of eradicating sin in the life of believer is, is ultimately that we would know and enjoy and accept experience God and live out the fruits of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. uh, and love him and love our neighbors. So I think um, uh, holiness that that when we define holiness primarily in a negative way, uh, I think that's concerning. I saw somebody, uh, something about a preacher who you know, he preached death root holiness all his life. And I, I think, man, I guess a little, that kind of like makes me a little bit uncomfortable when we define our preaching of holiness as primarily by something negative. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's concerning. So we really want a holistic, well-rounded and really positive and beautiful vision of, of holiness. Right. Right. And I think the point that cleansing is, uh, sort of a bridge uh, term, right? So it does have that negative aspect, but it does have that positive aspect too. So I think it's a good bridge term mm-hmm. to move us into more of the positive aspects. So let me let me throw this out there. So the church, the name of the church that I pastor has holiness in the name. So right on the church sign, actually in letters on the side of the church itself, you know, it says Bible holiness church. And, you know, I'm, I'm very accustomed to it. It's been that way for many years. 
I don't really even think of what that that title, that name communicates, but uh, it does communicate different ideas. And so I had a conversation, uh, it's been a few years ago now, but I had a conversation with a board member uh, who said, man, every time I see that name on there, I just, I feel just negative, yeah. just feel that was, that's because of his particular experiences with the doctrine of holiness and, and his particular understanding, which is very different now than what it was then. Uh, and, and so it's very interesting because I did not have that response. I didn't have a negative response to that name uh, like he did or like some, some do. And a lot of that comes down to how these ideas are are presented and how the whole doctrine of holiness is presented in terms of negativity or positivity. And, and, and as we get into this, uh, I want to keep in mind as well that uh, even in positive terms, positive terms can be used shamefully. Mm. Uh, they can be used to sort of whip someone uh, into a sort of submission. And and e- even if they're using a positive uh, metaphor, uh, it can still be used negatively. So our whole tone, our presentation, uh, the the, uh, the whole doctrine needs to be presented well and beautifully. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it doesn't come down necessarily to whether or not we are, um, you know, using say for, for a particular sermon, a, a negative metaphor or a positive metaphor, we need to have that balance, but you can use, we can use the, for instance, we talked about eradication language last, last, uh, last time uh, you can use eradication and do it beautifully. And, with a tone that is not uh, making people shamed into something. It's not driving, but is more welcoming. Hmm. So tone and presentation has a lot to do with how a person is going to perceive or receive uh, the message. Yeah. And I think that touches on something that's really close to the heart of holy joys for a holy, happy church is trying to retrieve that classic Wesleyan vision of, of holiness as something that brings us into a relationship with God and others that's full of joy and freedom and peace, you know, peace and freedom from the bondage of sin and the guilt of sin and the shame that comes with sin. And so we ought to be presenting in, in holiness in a way that's it's drawing people. I wrote an article on this with Oswald Chambers, and I don't like to just dog on, on Chambers because he had a lot of wonderful things to say, but I really think he missed the mark uh, in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. You know, that's been read by millions. Sure. And, and he has this whole this whole section on like God is is not in the business of, of making people happy. His only goal is to make people holy, to make them saints. And I'm like, really? Like, Why? Right. So what's the point? So he frees us from sin for what? Right. Isn't it to be happy right. in him? That's why Wesley says we were created to be happy in him. Like yes, God, God, it's not as though God like gains anything from having an army of holy ones. Like that doesn't gain him anything yeah. unless he's fellowshipping with them and they're enjoying him and glorifying. Him. So I really, yeah, I, I really think that imbalance is just, it's really uh, missing the heart of Wesley's vision of, of love and, uh, and I love Augustine's. Uh, I think it, I think it's Augustine who, who speaks of like love excluding sin. So so even the yeah. negative metaphors uh, re- related to like the eradication or removal of sin are always cast in light of it is love which excludes sin. It is love which casts out sin. So we've got to got to bring people to this loving fellowship with God, this loving enjoyment of God, and uh, and otherwise, yeah, you're going to have that negative reaction. Right, right. So today's uh, idea, uh, turning more toward the positive, is the the concept of of filling, right? The the filling of the Holy Spirit, uh, other words and ideas that go along with that. And uh, there there are a lot of discussions uh, that need to be have. Um, maybe one that we'll get into a little bit is particularly in the Book of Acts, right, mm-hmm. where uh, filling language obviously is introduced. Pretty quickly there at Pentecost in Acts two four, uh, where where the church the the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, so uh, we need to talk about that in relation to uh, the a, an order of of salvation in regard to how we understand 
uh, theologically, you know, does that, is that describing a particular event in the order of salvation? Uh, how does that fit into the salvation history? Uh, so that's a, an important conversation. And, and then obviously moving into Paul's theology of being filled with the spirit. And uh, in preparation for this, I pulled out, I have, you know, a dozen, uh, you know, 19th and 20th century, and even right here in front of me, a 21st century, uh, books on the doctrine of holiness from, you know, Richard Watson to uh, this, this one is Alan Brown's uh, book here, holiness for growing Christians, which you, if you haven't read, you need to get it and, and read it. Uh, we use it. I actually use it as a textbook uh, for um, a biblical holiness class that we teach here. And we uh, read this and then I, I make comments and we have conversations uh, about it. So, uh, yeah, so we a lot of places we can go with this, uh, but we want to. I think we probably will at least begin with the Book of Acts. Yeah, um, I think when when you look at what are the most common texts from which people preach entire sanctification, definitely Acts two and Ephesians five are are you know right up there. Um, sure. I I tend to start with Ephesians five. Um, Mainly because, at least when I'm trying to, to to talk to people about what it is that they mean by being filled with the Spirit, and, and I think the reason is um, that Paul gives us a lot of context there that sometimes Luke doesn't give us. I mean, he tells us that that the disciples are filled in Acts, mm-hmm. but we don't always have a lot of context to identify exactly what what he intends for that to mean. So I, I like to start with the Ephesians five, and and he says, you know, here he's commanding them, um, you know, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, you know, here's the, this is like the clearest command. I mean, Luke talks about believers being filled but this is a place where right. we have a command, right? You know, be filled. And, right. um, and I do think that, that Paul here um, is, is not talking about coming to this like definitive moment in the Christian life or in the Ordo Salutis where um, before I wasn't entirely sanctified or filled with the Spirit, and now I get filled with the Spirit. But he's, mm-hmm. he's actually really talking about letting the Spirit have his way in the local gathering. This is primarily corporate in its focus. And so, you know, I think of the Corinthian church, they're getting drunk on the communion wine in their, mm-hmm. in their worship services. And Paul says now to this, co- this congregation, you know, you shouldn't be drunk with wine. That's mm-hmm. debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And what is that going to look like? Singing corporately mm-hmm. to one another, submitting corporately to one another, giving thanks corporately, right? Among yourselves, lifting up your voices together as a community. So here we have this filling idea of allowing the spirit to be the controlling influence, not under the controlling influence of alcohol, but under the controlling influence of the spirit so that he can have his way and his fruit can be manifested among, among the community. Um, and that, that I think helps me then. And I, you know, I, I guess I, maybe a biblical theologian would want to really try to emphasize like a Pauline theology of filling and, a you know, Luke's theology of filling. And there, there may be some distinctions there, but I really do think that that can help inform what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I think so too. And I think just exegetically, it's important for us to look to see what Acts is doing with the language and then look to see what Paul is doing with the language specifically in Ephesians. And we can look to see what he's doing with the very similar language in Colossians. Yes, probably written on the same or similar occasions, but still uh, we need to look within the, the immediate context. Now, let me, before we move on, let me, for our listeners who uh, may be introduced here to some terms, uh, let's talk first about what an order of salvation is. <clears throat> so an order of salvation uh, just refers to uh, the, uh, for lack of a better word, the events, the order of events that take place uh, in our salvation, uh, uh, life of salvation or salvation experience. So uh, an order of salvation or the Latin phrase is ordo salutis. We will use both of those 
phrases, but an order of salvation typically uh, will uh, will begin as people present it with, say, the provenient grace of of God. So, God seeking us by His Spirit, seeking sinners. You know, while we were sinners, you know, Christ was already working. The Holy Spirit's already working in the lives of sinners. So that usually an order will start somewhere there, and then uh, and then the next. Uh, step in the order of salvation would be uh, conversion, uh, you know, justification, regeneration, initial sanctification, and there's discussions about each of those. And, and then the next, the next step usually is a a step of growth, you know, growth in holiness. Uh, for Wesleyan Arminians, we have uh, the doctrine of of entire sanctification, which is usually defined as a moment subsequent to conversion. Uh, so, so you're starting to see this this order of events. It's a logical and theological order. Uh, again, for those who may not be familiar with this language, and then of course, uh, in every tradition, it ends with uh, with glorification, right? Uh, which is you know yet to come for us who are uh, well yet to come for all of us. Um, so that's what we mean by order uh, uh, ordo salutis or order of salvation. And the big question. For the book of Acts in particular, is uh, is Luke describing an event that we can that we can pull out and stick into an order of salvation, so that we say, okay, Pentecost, what was Pentecost to them, is our Pentecost at say entire sanctification. That that's what is being described, and so our you know experience of entire sanctification should be something like that. Or is Luke not describing an an order, like really doesn't care about an order of salvation. He's just describing an event that is unique in the whole history of God's working out uh, for our salvation. And that this is a unique event in which the Holy Spirit came to the church in some unique and defining way. Uh, So, uh, before I ask your opinion on that, uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but um, I think generally speaking, uh, certainly John Wesley, but most Wesleyans and non-Wesleyans really uh, understand Luke to be just describing events and not really aiming at trying to build out an order of salvation uh, as if this is equated with the moment in which the disciples were entirely sanctified. Uh, Like that's not uh, generally even Wesleyans don't understand that. Now many do, many do, but that's not been, certainly not in the 19th century. John Fletcher was the exception, right? Mm -hmm. John Fletcher was the exception. And there were several in the 19th century who followed along with him. And that of course carried over into the more modern holiness movement. But, But that's certainly not a settled question. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to, to say that so and be, you know, Wesleyan. Uh, yeah. There's some, certainly room for conversation there. Yeah. So um, it might seem like I'm p- trying to pull the discussion in a different direction, but I'll, I'll circle around here. Why Ephesians 5, I think, is so important for me is that you have this clear command to be filled, um, you know, very direct, very clear command to be filled. But clearly, Paul does not envision this as this like, one-time momentous event in the Christian life along the order of salvation. Clearly, this is a general command to to allow the Spirit to have his controlling influence in your life. And yes, a believer who's been indwelled with the Spirit when they're Mm -hmm. saved and now is not yielding the Holy Spirit, yes, there's going to come a point when they've got to come under the, you know, yield to the Holy Spirit. But it's not this like, you know, I'm an empty glass and now I get filled up with the Holy Spirit along a per- certain point of the Christian life. Like that's the kind of filling that's being envisioned here. But I like to use the illustration of like wind in the sails of the ship. That's a different kind of filling. So it's like mm-hmm. I'm under the controlling influence of the Spirit. So the wind, you know, is blowing in my life from the moment I'm saved. I'm indwelled with the Holy Spirit. But my relationship to the wind changed where now I, I take my hands off the wheel, so to speak, and I allow the controlling wind of the Holy Spirit to fill the sails of my whole human nature, my whole life, and have his control and have his way in, 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 in my life and in our corporate life and in everything. We want the spirit to be in our control. So then when I go to when I go to Luke and I and I read, you know, 
about the filling language and it just comes up again and again and again. And it's used in such diverse ways. And sometimes yeah. it's believers. Sometimes it seems to be right. unbelievers, right? You know, I don't then go to this and try to map this onto an order of salvation, but I just, I view this, this language as this is a, a, a place where somebody came under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit and, or was empowered by the Spirit for a particular, you know, action or, or ministry. I'm not viewing this so definitively, but rather a more general description mm-hmm. of how the Spirit's working. So, you know, when you get to Pentecost, um, and you and you read that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then Peter's preaching. This just sounds so much like what the Spirit's been doing, you know, throughout the Old Testament and in Jesus's ministry. I mean, you got Bezalel who's who's filled with the Holy Spirit to devise artistic de- designs. You know, you have uh, you know uh, right, right. Zechariah right is filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe Zechariah to, to prophesy. So you have these fillings all over the place, and it's just it's any time that somebody's under the controlling influence of the Spirit, and the Spirit's having His way, and the Spirit's fruits are being you know being evidenced, and mm-hmm. and the Spirit's power is working through someone to empower them for ministry. Yeah, so that's a that's a key connection there with the filling language to Luke's introduction there in Acts one eight with the empowerment, right? So, so being filled, the command then in Ephesians five eighteen to be filled is uh, in part a uh, reference to the empowerment of the Spirit, right? So, uh, empowerment and filling are are very very closely associated by Luke. And I think we're. I think that plays out in Paul's theology of filling as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then let me comment on this because you kind of touched on these uh, two aspects of fill, the filling metaphor. That's what we're talking about. The filling metaphor. One number one, it's positive. Uh, it is a positive metaphor. Uh, something is happening. But notice also the passive language that is used. So the disciples were filled. Uh, the command in Ephesians 5.18, be filled. And so I think we have to uh, maybe discuss or look carefully at the passivity of it while also recognizing this is a command Mm -hmm. to allow something to occur to you by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, so I, you know, we just had a lot of discussion about this in, in relationship to the human response to grace. So I I love the idea of like, um, Mm -hmm let him have his way with you. So that that's kind of how mm-hmm. I view this command, right? It's a command, let him have his way, but it's his way yeah. and he's doing it, right? You're just kind of, there is a sense of passivity there, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's an active cooperation, you know, in a sense, yeah. there's, there's a sense of yeah. like, and I think we can speak a little bit more of our active cooperation post-conversion after we're born again, powered by the spirit. But, but the point being here that, that the spirit is trying to do something in the temple. He's filled the mm-hmm. temple. He, this is his dwelling place. He came to dwell among us. And now he's trying to do something in the temple and just let him have his way in the temple. Let him do what he wants to do. Uh, and I like what Thomas Oden says here uh, about Ephesians 5, especially the contrast is that between being drunkenly controlled by spiritist liquors and being fittingly empowered by the spirit of God so that music pours out of one's heart with mm. praise. So yeah. if you put off, put off the controlling influences of the world and let the spirit have his way in the temple, there's going to be this, this explosion of praise and music and thanksgiving. I think that's a really beautiful picture. Yeah. Yeah, that is. And I, I think that's especially important because that's that whole idea right there of the spirit doing something, you know, filling the temple, doing something beautiful, eliciting, uh, you know, uh, art from us, you know, the music from us, right. That has to follow our discussion of cleansing or our idea of cleansing, right. Because cleansing in itself is not the end. And you alluded to this, uh, to this earlier, you know, God does not uh, do the work. You know, the spirit doesn't do his work in us just to make us clean and then, you know, set us up in the cupboard. It is to, in order to fill us with something beautiful and sweet and even artistic, uh, the art of the, of the Holy spirit. Uh, so this, this cleansing, if, if 
that's a favorite metaphor of yours in preaching. Uh, don't stop there. Uh, make sure that that you can couple this idea of filling because we are cleansed for a purpose, mm-hmm. uh, not just uh, for the sake of, oh, well, we are no longer in sin. So uh, we're ready to be put on the shelf. Uh, no, no, no. We may do that with our dishes, but you know, those, <laughs> those dishes aren't, you know, we have a set of dishes that look really nice in our, um, you know, in a special display. They're behind, you know, glass doors, but we do pull them out for special occasions, right? Mm-hmm. So cleansing in itself is not uh, a sufficient, uh, sufficient for a full orbed uh, understanding of what uh, the doctrine of holiness is. Yeah. So I have this you know, little blog that I've just been using for like random reflections on um, questions related to, to art, beauty, theology. Um, and I have this little article I was working on on filled with the spirit for art and music. And I do think it's really mm-hmm. significant that the first time in the Old Testament that someone is filled with the spirit is an yeah. artist. Uh, for craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze. And then in the New Testament, the clearest command to be filled with the Spirit is followed by the expectation that we'll sing, (laughs) you know? And and that comes back to this vision of of God creating this beautiful people that reflects His beauty. Uh, So yeah, that's, that's... that's why right. I love these positive metaphors because they're 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 moving us beyond this kind of like holiness as just you know burning something out of me or digging something out of me and like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yes God needs to do that because those things can get in the way of but what He wants to do you know is so much more and so yes. much more beautiful than that. So this there's a I have a huge pet peeve and it, this goes back to what. I shared earlier, you know, we have holiness on our church sign in our case. Uh, maybe your church does too. I don't know. But uh, if if you call yourself a holiness church, what do people experience when they come in? What do they see? And quite frankly, holiness churches are the most dull, boring, <laughs> just straight-laced places, right? I mean, you, oh, you come terrible. in and it, it does not communicate the, the sort of, of – uh, you know, what we're talking about, the spirit filling this place with beauty. And I know there's a lot of fear of, of becoming, um, you know, uh, mechanical in our, our worship. And we, we tend to be very free spirited in our worship, right? We like to have free worship and, you know, let the spirit have his way. Well, let me tell you what the spirit does when he has his way. He, he beautifies things. Mm. Uh, you know, he, he, the Holy spirit, uh, you know, he sings songs. He, he, he brings out from us our creativity in a whole wholesome way. And you, you would never know that in many church buildings, just from the architecture. Uh, and then sometimes you wouldn't even know that from the sort of liturgy that we practice as well, because we've emptied it of the beautiful, uh, you know, uh, uh, symbols and uh, meaningful signs that uh, the church has practiced, you know, through the ages, and not not just you know Roman Catholics, but Protestants, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Protestants uh, have you know, the early Protestants uh, appreciated uh, a lot of the the symbols as well. Some of them didn't, but but most of them did, and and tried to hold on to a lot of that. Yeah, this is maybe we, to- maybe we digress. No, that's okay. I think this will be a good segue for us to get to some things that we've been wanting to talk about for a while. Some things I'm very eager to talk about, but I think we have drawn uh, t- far too sharp of a distinction between moral beauty and and more visual beauty, and and so people will say things like, "Well, the beauty of holiness that is only you know uh, an invisible or a moral beauty." But I want to say that I actually oh, think that yeah. in the Old Testament we see that the holiness of things was also marked off in a very visual and aesthetic way. So I do think yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's a connection between the two. I do think we have texts like, you know, the, the um, don't be adorned with jewelry, but with a meek and quiet spirit, mm-hmm. right? the unfading mm-hmm. beauty. 
So there is an emphasis on that, the sure. that moral or metaphysical beauty to use like, I think Aquinas's categories and, and a more natural visual beauty. Um, but there definitely should be a, a correlation or connection. And I think if there, if there, those two things are too disproportionate, um, you, you mm-hmm. actually distract from a moral beauty. And I think that ought to work itself out. The beauty of holiness. Yeah. Yeah, holiness. certainly. And there's, a, there's a corporate aspect to this as well. Uh, obviously in acts, you have the spirit being poured out upon not only individuals and, you know, this is a personal filling. So we could add that, you know, it's positive, it's passive, it's personal, uh, but it's corporal. Uh, corporate as well. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of filling is, um, speaks at least somewhat to, to an extent that the filling, uh, and there are a couple of different ways, uh, to, to think about it. Um, some, some people really think about filling as like a deepening. Now I'm, I don't go there so, so quickly. Uh, as much as I do a a more of extensive um, filling, almost in my mind, for some reason, it's horizontal rather than deepening. But it's it's an encompassing, and I think actually uh, was it uh, in this book here I mentioned by by Alan Brown. I think he um, mentions. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he says normally we think in terms of quantity, volume, measurement. So that's sort of that idea of you know, uh, make, you know, fill your cup all the way up, that sort of a thing, mm-hmm. uh, where, and Phil's done some good work on, uh, first Thessalonians five twenty three in particular, uh, in demonstrating that, uh, Paul seems really to have in mind extent, uh, that this is as again, Alan Brown says, this is, uh, he says something like a yielding control of every aspect of your life. Um, those are his exact words, but pretty close to it. Uh, and and so he he uh, uses the idea of fullness uh, fullness uh, in regard to control. That's an important uh, word for him. Uh, I think you used this word earlier. Uh, he uses this word yield, which I find very helpful. I think it's a really uh, good theologically rich word. So when Paul says "be filled with the Spirit," it's a command to yield to the fullness of the spirit. So it's not inactive. There is passivity there, but it's not entirely inactive on our part. Um, uh, but it is, uh, but it does seem to be extensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and it's also something that is, is continual. Uh, we continue to yield. We continue to be filled, to, to yield f- uh, uh, to the spirit's fullness. Right, you know, comment on that. Yeah, I just keep coming back to the temple imagery. You know, God fills the temple; He does fill the the living stones, but the living stones are built up into a temple as a dwelling place for God. Yeah. So, yeah. so when we picture, I think when we think about when most people think about the command to be filled with the Spirit, they do think of themselves as I'm this, you know, one person, this one vessel, this one cup, right, Mm -hmm. that needs to be filled personally, individually, some truth to that. But I do think the emphasis is much more on um, I'm I'm a member of a body, I'm a stone in a building. And when the stones are together, God is filling us as a whole, right, as a community. So I think that Mm -hmm. that the way that that works itself out in our worship and our relationships and our social holiness, you know, and our restoration of those of sin. Um, I think we ought to be thinking probably, um, about those one another commands that are so important to you, yeah. uh, in relationship to this, this commandment a lot more than we do, uh, rather than it just being something that I personally need to experience myself often, something I need to pray for individually in my prayer closet and get it all sorted out uh, versus something that I'm, I, I should expect to experience in the gathering and in, and in community and in relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So there even to, to, to carry out the one another's uh, the one another commands, that's a, that's a living out of a yielded life to the spirit, the spirit who will always orient us toward other people. That's part of the beauty that is produced by the fullness of the spirit. I want to go back though. Let's, let's bring this phrase up again, the order of salvation and talk about fullness. So when, according to 
you know, some of the scriptures we've talked about, especially Ephesians five, we could talk about uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians three um, as well. And these are all given to Christians, right? A prayer, a command to be filled. So where does this, how do we understand this in regard to the Wesleyan uh, understanding of entire sanctification? Are, is Paul speaking to Christians saying, be entirely sanctified when he says, be filled with the spirit? Is he saying that? Is he saying that and more or something totally different? Mm-hmm. I I don't think it's wise to preach entire sanctification from Ephesians 5. What I think Ephesians 5 does is equip us with some vital data for constructing a doctrine of entire sanctification. But I don't see that as a command to to be entirely sanctified, you know, kind of the like a, like a 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, 23 kind of kind of command. Um, but I do think that as we look at what does that mean in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it's going to require us to have a, an understanding of how the Spirit's working and filling and, and, and you know, believers being under his, his influence and control. Um, as it goes, pertains to Acts, I think the question is how filling relates to baptism, because I do think baptism mm-hmm. with the Holy Spirit is much more definitive, or at least seems to be. Right. Yeah. So it's very common in, you know, say Greider or Del Yoakum or, you know, some of these earlier Nazarene theologians to make a very sharp distinction between the baptism of the Spirit, which uh, they take to be distinct from the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, so for instance, Del Yoakum in his book, The Holy Way, uh, he says, okay, the baptism of the Spirit was the event of Pentecost that is unique. And baptism is only mentioned one other time after, you know, after the book of Acts. Uh, but there was also a filling with the Spirit with subsequent fillings of the Spirit. So the, the disciples and, by extension, Christians can continue to be filled with the Spirit uh, on, on, you know, occasion after occasion. So that's a pretty common understanding. Uh, would you vary from that? Uh, or would you add something to that? Uh, you know, I I tend to, at least this is the way I think about it right now, uh, think about baptism with the Holy Spirit as what happens when we're when we're born again. So, you know, we're baptized by the Spirit into one body. We're baptized into the, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Right? That's that's done by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I very much would view baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit as, as being something that the, the disciples at Pentecost experience the Holy Spirit in his new covenant fullness in a new way at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. But after Pentecost, every believer is baptized by the Spirit yeah. when they're saved. And I, I think yeah, you know, yeah, various, various sure. passages. And I think the arguments against that are like exceedingly weak and hinge on like prepositions, like being baptized, you know, by the Spirit versus being baptized into the body or something. I think baptism, that's what happens when, whenever that's, it's available to every believer under the new covenant, because we are in union with Christ whose humanity was baptized by the Holy spirit. Um, and then filling describes, you know, in the life of a believer who's indwelled and baptized by the Holy spirit now being under his controlling influence, being empowered by him for ministry. And I do think that entire sanctification is a point in which the believer is filled with the spirit um, in the sense that the way that the whole human nature is reoriented towards God and love is by coming under the full control of the indwelling Holy spirit. Who's, who's renewing our heart and love. So I would see a connection there, but it wouldn't be a one for one. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I don't think I I would have any significant disagreement with that. I, I would want to point out to uh, pr- perhaps many listeners who have uh, perhaps struggled and they didn't even know that this is a struggle with an order of salvation, but there's um, there is a, a mental uh, kind of a mental block that some people have because they feel like, or they believe their mind at least tells them that they have to have uh, two distinct experiences in order to be able to testify to 
what they may have heard called the fullness of the spirit or entire sanctification, or some cases, the baptism of the spirit, if they equate that with entire sanctification. Um, and by the way, I think you're right on that point. Um, but so some people have this, this mental block uh, that, that unless they have this, these distinct, you know, moments and experiences, then they, you know, they, they can't really testify to, to yes, I am fully yielded and being filled with the Spirit even now, um, and I've encountered that as a pastor. I've encountered that for for many years, and so I want to say to this, uh, to that, I want to say first of all, uh, and I get this from John Wesley. Uh, first of all, God does not intend, or at least there's no reason from God's perspective, no necessity for there to be such a sharp especially chronological distinction between our new birth in the spirit and our yielding to the fullness of the spirit. Um, and there doesn't, for, again, from God, this is how John Wesley says it from God's perspective, there time is not of essence. Like that's God, that's what God wishes for every believer. He, he, you know, in our uh, salvation, in our, um, you know, coming to Christ, we receive the the Spirit, the whole Spirit, the you know, the Holy Spirit in His fullness, and then God wants us to to from that moment to live yielded to His Spirit and mm-hmm. uh, and fullness. The thing I appreciate about Wesley is he says there are reasons why it doesn't happen that cleanly and neatly, and it's because of us, not because of God. <laughs> it's because of us. Right, yeah. uh, it's it is, and yes, some of it comes back to what he calls sin in the believer. It comes back to to uh, we we don't adjust well to our new life, mm-hmm. and this is Paul's admonition. Uh, this is Paul's prayer in Ephesians, and also, of course, throughout Colossians, that uh, that we would that we would yield ourselves to this new life and the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. So um, now the other thing we've done is we have we have uh, burdened the doctrine of holiness, uh, especially these kinds of, of terms, with all sorts of political ramifications. Uh, John Wesley, again, I, I've probably said this before, but I want to say it again. John Wesley uh, was n- was never under the political pressure to give a clear testimony. Of uh, of being entirely sanctified uh, in today's you know conservative holiness church conservative Wesleyan churches those churches that that you know preach and teach entire sanctification there is quite a bit of political pressure mm-hmm. and you know even so much that you know as a pastor in you know whatever denomination you're in you may uh, you may have to sign something every year saying that you are or are not you know, that you are entirely sanctif- uh, sanctified or you are seeking to be well I, mean, I think you know it, it, the intent is not to politicize uh you know these things it's not and yet that is certainly an effect uh, it does and i think that's very significant uh, to to the whole doctrine of holiness today as it is in uh, again, more conservative Wesleyan circles. Yeah, we love to bundle things up neatly. We love to control things. We love to know. We love to have our finger on on exactly where things are. So, if you create this culture where everybody there's like clear st- you're either you know, you're saved. I'm not saved, but not yet sanctified. I'm saved and sanctified. Mm-hmm. Like if you can create this this very definitive. You're measuring thing, you know. You're measuring where that person's at, you know, strictly in terms of where they're at on a, on the order of salutis versus degrees of maturity, whatever else. So I posted something the other the other day. We had that little conversation about um, 
uh, about you know the fact that a healthy church is going to have some very unhealthy people. And there's a very sure. honest and, and, and question, and, and it's fine, right? But the question, he just didn't even understand the category of somebody in the church who's sick. Because for him, it's like, do you mean somebody mm-hmm. who's not saved and entirely sanctified, or, or somebody who's saved but not mm-hmm. entirely sanctified, right? So our whole measurement of a person's holiness is where they're at on this very clearly defined mm-hmm. order of salutis, whereas I don't think that's at all how um, how the New Testament presents it. It's much more it's much more organic. It's much more relational. It's much more dynamic. It's much more real, right? And so, it's, yeah, it's focused yeah. on maturity and health and and those kind of things. And pre- and it's much more present. So when we when we lock ourselves mentally into a sort of a, a strict order of salvation that says, okay, where am I in that process? It becomes more about an event that is in the, already in the past or an event that is yet future. Mm-hmm. And that's not at all, I mean, other than our glorification in the end, that's not at all the focus of the life of holiness that's given to us in either the Old or New Testaments. It's very much about where you are right now, yield. Like wherever you are, yield. Like that's it. Like if you are yielding, then you will experience the fullness of what God has for you right now. Yield right where you are. And and I, we really need to recapture that. And I think I, I really appreciate this about uh, Alan Brown is that he, he so closely – uh, ties this idea of, of being filled with the spirit with this yieldedness. And, and he has a section in there about, you know, maintaining the fullness of spirit. It's all about yielding. And that's the bottom line is, are you yielded? And in fact, we'd be better off to maybe just ask that question, you know, lower the political ramifications and just say, are you fully yielded to, to the Holy spirit right now? Mm-hmm. Is that where you are? That's what God expects. Mm-hmm. Good. So how does this relate then to perfection and love? Um, because mm, you, yeah. the, mm. so the, I think one of the most important verses uh, for this whole discussion is that God has shed his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And, and so the Spirit is right. the Spirit right. that, that fills us with divine love. And so when you are yielding to the work of the Spirit, you're yielding to the Spirit of love. And that spirit's work of love in you, love for God and love for others is what he's producing in you, is going to exclude sin, love excluding sin. So mm-hmm. perfection in love then is not so much about the um, it's not so much about the quality of our love, which is always going to be deepening and growing and maturing, but the completeness of our love in that the spirit is, is working out in our attitudes, in our um, relationships and our behaviors, ways of behaving that are motivated by and characterized by divine love. Would that be a fair connection there? I'm still trying to think through that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd forgotten about this. Um, and I'm, I'm not recalling off the top of my head because I did not write this in my notes, but uh, so John Wesley uh, somewhere really pretty much equates uh, being filled with the spirit with perfect love. I mean, it's, it's, he uses them very clearly Mm -hmm. and I'll have to double check that reference. But uh, so, so this, and I found that very interesting because of what he says about and his understanding of being filled with the spirit, because he understands filling of the spirit similarly to, to us. That is that this is, there is there is a moment where we are filled with the spirit, but the the emphasis is you know presently continue to be filled and yielded to the spirit, right? And that's that's Wesley as well. Well, that's very different than what some people's understanding or interpretation or presentation of Wesley's perfect love has been. Uh, that has tended to be like you know, have you learned to love perfectly at some point? You know, kind of crisis centered. Uh, without really much reference to you know where you are presently, um, but but I think when we see how Wesley uses those two ideas, perfect love with fill, uh, being filled with the Spirit, it kind of opens up more of his understanding of how we grow in love, we deepen in love, we we our our, our love our love uh, continues to uh, manifest itself 
in in greater and and deeper and purer ways than what they did previously, and that's and that's perfectly consistent with uh, the uh, his whole understanding of the work of the Spirit and entire sanctification and so on. Yeah, I don't know what you think about the. Uh, I guess it's really. I think it goes back to Augustine. I know I know it goes back to Augustine. I think it was really developed by Edwards. The idea that the Holy Spirit is like the bond of love between the Father and Son yeah. and the Trinity. And so, yeah. you know, when you say, for example, that you you have love, well, love is not just a quality, but it's a person. So to be filled mm-hmm. with the spirit is to be filled with love, right? Perfect love. So, you know, the spirit, the spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. He is love. And as the spirit and his fruit is manifest in our life, that is love. So I think thinking about loves in, in a very personal terms, God is love. Like actually thinking about it in those very personal ways can also move us away from this very mechanical this moment, this happens in this very moment, like versus thinking about it much more relationally and personally, organically. Yeah, I think so for sure. And and none of this is to discount the importance of, uh, you know, moments, obviously conversion, mm. but moments of yielding moments in which the Holy Spirit does something dramatic and drastic within our, when I, when I say dramatic, I don't mean you have to have this, you know, really, you know, ecstatic experience. I'm not, I don't mean that, but I mean, uh, theologically, uh, there is our, um, I, I use dramatic, probably more in the Kevin Van Hooser sense, our, <laughs> our, the way we play out the role that God has given to us in life mm. is reoriented, right? So there is that way. Uh, but then, uh, but what we're talking about is uh, being sure that we don't misread, say, Paul as to, interpret him to be really pointing us to, you know, a crisis experience when he's talking about life. Mm-hmm. He's talking about life in the spirit. He's talking about, you know, Galatians five walking in the spirit. Yeah. You know, he's talking about when we do that, then we are not walking in the flesh. We're doing one or the other, not both. And, uh, and, and learn how to continually walk in the, in the spirit you know, and and then of course you know you have the fruit of the spirit that are you know that are bore out in our life as we do that. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I think that's uh, a recognition because I can hear people say, "Oh wait, are you you know you don't you don't affirm you know that there's a moment you know that sounds like you're really just talking about progressive." No, we're talking about both. We're yeah. talking about both, and, and we're talking about how we got to be again really careful not to inject into Paul's mouth what he's not saying here. And I, I, you know, I'm a systematic theologian. You enjoy systematic theology, um, and systematic theologians in the Wesleyan tradition uh, have, for some reason, have had the, <laughs> perhaps rightfully, gotten the bad reputation of imposing like an order of order of salvation on these sorts of of passages and on everything. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, on everything. Yeah. And uh, but but I would say there there's been a drastic move away from that. Like yeah, there's been a, right. a widespread recognition like whoa, you know, that's not like stop it. You know, let's let's just move back away from that. Yeah, but and I think so that's come, been recognized. Come back to this construction idea though. Like for me, like with systematic theology, I can I can start with or go to Ephesians 5 and I can move beyond what Paul, yeah. you know, is in the mouth of Paul there. And that's fine. But you, you've got to place what's happening there in its broader context. So I think systematic theology can help you to get more out of that text. That, yes. that, right. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that I'm saying this is what Paul is saying. You're like this means be like Paul is saying be entirely sanctified. Mm-hmm. That's different mm-hmm. than us saying, okay, here we have an example of how the spirit works in the life of the believer, the life of the community. Here's other examples of how the spirit works. Here's the, here's what God wants for us. Here's how these things are related to one another. And so if you obey the command of Paul to be filled with the spirit and let him have his way in your gathering, you know, you're going to be, or it's going to lead you to being entirely sanctified. And that, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the struggle I have. Like I, another example, like first Thessalonians four, where we're, this is the will of God, even your sanctification and your preachers get up and sure. say, that's a command to be entirely sanctified. Yeah, right. No, it's yeah, not. Right. 
It's no, a command no, no. to abstain from, like he tells you literally, it's like, yes, exactly. This is the will of God, your sanctification, colon, abstain from sexual immorality. And then it goes on to right. talk about how you walk, right. how you live. But if you obey that command, of course, it's going to lead you to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Yes. So I'm not saying yeah. that you, you say, oh, I can never make a connection between entire sanctification and Ephesians 5 or 1 Thessalonians 4. No, systematic theology allows you to do that, but it also gives you the, the tools to do that in a way that's thoughtful and you're clear about what, you know, where the connecting points actually are. Yeah, and let's be clear again to those who may not be as oriented to what systematic theology is or how theology and exegesis work. Um, you, it's this, and I agree with you. So we are we're not saying anything more than that. Scripture itself implies the necessity for us to correlate these theological concepts into a coherent whole because scripture is a coherent whole. It presents a single theology. We may be wrong in the way we theologize with it, but it, it, it presents us and we have to use, uh, you know, the tools of systematic thinking to be able to pull scripture together into a coherent whole. And, uh, and, and so I think, uh, you know, we don't have time in this episode, but, uh, and we've touched a little bit on the effect in there in Ephesians five of being filled with the spirit, you know, the singing and the, the sharing of, of, of songs together, the giving of thanks it ends with, with, uh, you know, submitting to one another. Uh, you know, I, it would be good to break some of those things down because um, especially the submission part in light of the positivity of a yielded life to the spirit. Uh, and so we might want to come back and do another episode just on this, uh, this continued idea of, of being, uh, of being yielded and being filled with the spirit. Again, a positive, a positive metaphor, uh, that, um, is, that must be coupled with you know, what we talked about last time, you know, eradication and, and, and cleansing and, you know, removal language. Uh, we want to, we want to couple these together very intentionally and carefully. And uh, that's what we're trying to communicate, uh, especially to those who would present this in preaching or teaching. Uh, We want to urge that that balance within the presentation of of the negative and the positive. Mm -hmm. I think we're out of time. Maybe I'll I'll add this on a personal note. And then if you want to add anything, we'll we'll close. Um, This kept coming back to my mind. When I look back to my regeneration, not even, you know, entire sanctification, but my regeneration, I cannot point to a moment. I cannot Mm -hmm. point to an experience. I can point to a whole period in my life where, you know, God definitely (laughs) transformed me and things were, all things became new. Um, Now from scripture, I believe that regeneration is a moment. And so I believe that there was a moment when I was born again, but I don't know when that was. What I think is far more important is that I know I'm born again by the grace of God, spirit witnesses of my spirit to transform my life. I think that's very similar to what we're trying to say here is that Mm -hmm. we're not saying that entire sanctification is not, there's not a secondness or a definitiveness to it or a subsequency to it or what like we're not or it's not it's not a moment right there's not a moment when someone who wasn't right if you're entirely sanctified now there's then there was a moment when you weren't right so then that means there was a moment when you became right so th- there's not saying there's not a moment when that happens but we're saying that we've far overplayed the importance of consciously experiencing that moment whereas mm-hmm. scripture is much more concerned on you being in that state of total yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. And if you do, and if you are, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I've started to ask, you know, people like, do you know that right now you're fully yielded to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I, yeah, I am. You are entirely sanctified like that. Okay. You are entirely sanctified. And then they'll their the response is always like, yeah, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a moment. I didn't have an experience. Yeah. Well, I didn't have an experience of the new birth. You know, should I, 
live the rest of my Christian life, like either trying to get, have an experience of the new birth or like just living in constant doubt and lack of assurance. Cause I didn't have the moment. Like, I don't think that's what, what God, God wants for us. I think it's a very subjective and a very unstable way to live the Christian life. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. I think I would just end with this thought that for those, you know, many people, I, I run into them very frequently. I've been there myself who struggle with the assurance of yieldedness and and the fullness of the Spirit. And I think I would just say this, um, know that God wants all of his children to have the fullness of the blessing of the Holy Spirit, even now, and that it is God's responsibility to fill you. You cannot fill yourself. And we, we get this urge to pray harder, to have, you know, somehow conjure up a, a more robust faith. You know, if you're in the midst of that battle right now, I, I just, maybe, maybe what you just need to do is you just need to vocalize and just out loud say, Lord, I yield to your work. Lord, I yield to your spirit. And that's it. That you just you need to own your yieldedness, and that's it. Um, and allow God to do what only He can do anyway. Um, and so, some there's something about vocalizing. I'm big on vocalizing. Uh, there's something about when you vocalize the attitude that you know you you need to have that attitude of yieldedness. In this case, um, when you vocalize it, you you own it. It's it it's 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 yours. You are it is you yielding, right? And um and and I I believe with all my heart that God in His good pleasure uh, will respond as He again as He pleases when He pleases, and uh, th- that's all He asks of us is to yield to Him, our Creator, our Savior, our Sanctifier. Um, our, our, um, you know, our, our, the one who empowers us and fills us with his spirit. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joys podcast. Email your questions to podcast at holyjoys.org and they may be featured on a future episode. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.